When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we continue our countdown of our top 10 Division I women's tennis teams entering the 2023 college tennis season. If you missed our breakdowns of number 10, USC, number 9, Virginia, just scroll down on your feed. You can hear myself, John Parsons, breakdown. Each of those teams make the case for why we think they are top 10 heading into the season, of course, where we think we'll finish, they'll finish, excuse me, in the 2023 season as well. And on today's show, again, we continue down the same path. We've got number eight Duke for all of you listeners today and joining me to break down the Blue Devils as he does each and every week is a returning champion, perhaps the returning champion of all returning champions now on our Crack Racket shows. He'll know I'm buttering him up because I was devastatingly late for today's podcast. Of course, you know him best as the founder of the No Ad No Problem blog, No Ad No Problem podcast, a co-host of our Deciding Point episodes throughout the college tennis season. It's our dear friend, Cracked Rackets contributor, John Parsons. Jay, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. The returning champion. I like that label. You know, I had some time to catch up on the uh, the men's pods this past weekend. So listen to, coincidentally, USC at number 10, Georgia at number nine there. You know, I know Matt retired. I didn't think you would so quickly replace him with your dear friend, Johnny Walker, <laughs> JW for short. He definitely made an appearance on the number nine Georgia podcast. It was good to see the Holy Trinity back together there. Oh, I appreciate you saying that. Well, if you listened to our breakdown, and by the way, every Monday, excuse me, we record Monday and Wednesday, every Tuesday, Thursday, you can hear us break down two Division One women's teams. Every Wednesday, Friday, you can hear Chris Hallioris and I break down two Division One men's teams. If you listened to number nine UVA, you may have heard my brain was a bit scrambled. It was in a way podcast for me. I was not in Indianapolis. I was going to celebrate my brother's 30th birthday. And I just felt my brain was a bit scrambled during that number nine podcast with you. So what Jay is alluding to is the way I tried to slow myself down for the men's equivalent podcast was by introducing, as he alluded to, a new third member of the show where we still I thought it was pretty coherent. I thought it was a good show. It was coherent. <laughs> Does that mean it was not a good show? Is it time to re-record? No. 
Okay. That's, it was that... it was it was the right level of spice for okay. sure. Good. That's that's what I'm hoping for. I'll say this: I am back in Indianapolis, and I am extraordinarily excited for today's podcast on the number eight Duke Blue Devils because obviously we have alluded to this in each and every one of our shows. We will continue to do so in all of them as it's an unavoidable topic. As you look at the top of both Division One men's and women's college tennis this season, much like we said last year. We'll say it next year for the last time as well. These teams are stacked, and that is a direct byproduct of the fact that we have five classes of high school graduates right now competing in college tennis. You can't overstate that fact enough. Or, you know, it's it's always interesting, quick tangent, overstate, understate gets grossly misused in common vernacular. You cannot overstate this enough. I want to emphasize that fact uh, again. These teams are just loaded. You have to be five, six deep, and not just on paper six deep, proven commodities on your roster if you want to be able to compete for a national championship this season. And as we get further into this top 10, Jay, I think that fact becomes more pronounced as you look at some of these rosters. And I think even when we look at number eight, Duke, superficially, a lot of times this would be a team where you're like, yep, that's your national championship favorite. Like in traditional college tennis terms with the combination of depth, returning talent, transfers and newcomers they brought in. It's just the perfect amalgamation of everything you'd want. And yet we're at number eight talking about Duke. So again, I use that preface here in the intro, Jay, to just state to Maybe this is a direct conversation with Duke women's tennis head coach Jamie Ashworth. As you're going to see throughout the course of this podcast, I am very fond of the Blue, uh, Blue, there it is, Duke Blue Devils heading into this season. But Jay, I do feel like you can't state that enough, right? Like we may call a team number eight, but from here on in, semifinals, finals of either the indoors or the NCAA championships, I really do feel like all of these teams just from the top are capable of it. Yeah, I mean, this is a Duke team who made the NCAA semifinals last year, arguably got significantly better with a lot of their additions, right? And not that many departures from this team. And we have them at eight. So, you know, these teams up and down the roster are incredibly close, incredibly deep. Uh, It's really splitting hairs here, uh, one through really all the way down. Um, So it's going to be a fun season. You mentioned the key fact right there as we get into the Duke Blue Devils. You look at what they were able to accomplish last year, 23-4 and overall, NCAA semifinalists, as you alluded to, perhaps uh, most importantly to them. They win the ACC Conference Tournament. They beat North Carolina at home to end the season. That said... When you look at Duke in 2022, as we talk overperformance, underperformance, did they get their results just right? I do think it's just worth remembering this team did not make the national indoors. This was the team that got knocked off by Oklahoma and again, playing the results now we know like, well, that team made the indoor final and the NCAA championships and you made the semifinals. So like, doesn't matter. You can write that loss off. They didn't make the national indoors, so maybe you could call it an underperformance, but ACC tournament champions, NCAA semifinals with the talent they had last year, I feel like Coach Ashworth and the team got things just right. I would argue they overperformed, right? I think particularly given that they didn't make the indoors and then they were under the radar, right, from not making indoors and then 
they go through most of the season. They have a horrible road trip, uh, road trip in Florida where they lose to an undermanned Florida state and things were looking really off the rails there. So to come from that point, right, to reel off 12 straight after losing to Florida State and Miami, win the ACC championship, like you mentioned, and make the NCAA semifinals, I think net-net an overperformance for the Duke Blue Devils. So I see your argument. I disagree. And you can go back and listen to my conversation with Coach Ashworth heading into the NCAA quarterfinals where I had to ask him about that weekend in Florida. And he got into the details, the disastrous flights and just how difficult it was from a time crunch perspective. And let's be clear, he did not use that as an excuse. He just wanted to say, this is what that weekend looked like for my team on the court, off the court, complete disaster. They had one bad weekend. Like, that was it. I, I don't think you can say overperformance because I do think this team was that good all year long. And yes, they had a very bad weekend, but outside of that weekend, they lost to NCAA finalists Oklahoma, and they lost to NCAA national indoor finalists Oklahoma. Like, Oklahoma had their number, and they had a bad weekend in Florida. They were that good all year long. Yeah, but aren't we talking about the season overall? Right. And like coming into the season, did we expect Duke to make the NCAA semifinals? And when was the last time they won the ACC championship? Uh, do you have that number off the top? I of do. Head? It was 10 years ago. <laughs> it was 10 years ago. Okay. Right. 2012. So for them, you know. Then I guess over over performance, the word should be exceeded expectations. Do you want to change that moving forward? I think forward? we should change it. Yeah. Because yes. over performance is like they maybe weren't capable of doing it. Yes. Coming in, I think they exceeded expectations. They, Gil Gross calls me the fake editor in chief. We do it live here at Crack Rackets, folks. I agree. They exceeded expectations. That's the middle ground here. Certainly, uh, you look at this team and actually, you know what's interesting? I think the overperformance side of the element comes into the fact that when you look at how this team performed, it was very much the whole is uh, is greater than the sum of the parts, right? Because when you look individually at the roster, they had a stud. It was Chloe Beck, 15 and 0 at the number 2 spot and really whoever was at that number 2 spot 25 and 0 throughout the course of the season. They were Wild. also really good at the number three double spot, 23-3 and three throughout the course of the season. Go back, watch the NCC, uh, NC State quarterfinal match. That doubles point essentially decided things. Now that the- is overperformance, yeah. knocking out <laughs> NC State doubles in the NCAA quarterfinal. Night match as well. That was such a fun one. Um, anyways, all of that in mind, not to disrespect the 17-5 and five performance at four because that probably deserves a shout-out, but everything other than that like was less than a two-thirds win percentage. And for a team to go 23-4 and four with only two and a half spots, winning more than two-thirds of the matches, that is the sum is greater than the whole of the parts. Yeah, they found points throughout, right? You, you knew they were getting two. Right, whether it was Chloe Beck or Georgia Drummy, they were undefeated at number two. To be undefeated at any position, anywhere, at any level is extremely round hard of applause. To do. Round of applause. Of exactly. You felt like Kelly Chen in there, you know, in the big moments was going to be clinch, right? Uh, primarily playing down there at four. And then between doubles, where they were very strong at three, so they just needed to win one of one or two. And then 
someone having a good day at three, five, and six. That's ultimately what it came down to. It's ultimately why they played so many close matches down that home stretch. Yeah, and ultimately, yeah, to your point, did Kelly Chen have the greatest season? No, she did not. Did Kelly Chen manage to earn big victories when she needed to or when her team really needed her to pull through? Absolutely. Case in point, obviously, you look at her victory uh, over Fiona Crawley in that home match to clinch over UNC and then, you know, beats Nell Miller in the NCAA championships as well. Gets a good win over Guzman in the semifinals for what it's worth. Yeah, it was, you know, Drummy started off the year extraordinarily well, and then she sort of cooled off a little bit, uh, but certainly found her level again when they made a position switch. Yeah, again, and then at times it was Jackson, at times it was, you know, Billiken coming through. That's why when I look at this team this season, the fact that they were able to do that last year, and you mentioned it at the start. The returners they bring back, you know, essentially the core is back and the fact that you bring back Chloe Beck, you bring back Georgia Drummy and obviously Coleman Jackson, uh, Jackson two years, uh, a year more experienced, excuse me, as well. They bring back a lot of the pieces, but now they have even more parts to play with. Yeah, and I would argue one other player um, who really performed in sort of those key moments was Ellie Coleman, who... Match in, match out was probably not as reliable of a point as they might have been hoping for. But down the home stretch, and this is where, you know, they really excelled, right? She gets a 7-6 win in the third over Sophie Abrams at NC State to knock off NC State. She beats Yarla Gata in that match uh, against UNC. She beats Sarah Ziodato of Virginia in the ACC championship. And then she doesn't win a match in NCAAs. So, you know... It vacillated between who was having their moments, whether it was a Kelly Chen and Ellie Coleman, whether it was Emma Jackson clinching the ACCs, right? Outside of that top two of uh, Chloe Beck and Georgia Drummy, it was kind of popcorn style. Everyone else like having their moment. You are right in the sense that she didn't actually earn a victory in the NCAs, but kept things alive against a run door, won that first set, allowed her team to seize momentum. Same thing, NC State. She goes three with Rejecki, but she wins the first set. And with Duke winning that doubles point, it just felt like NC State had their backs against the wall of the wall for so long that eventually things broke through. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, again, inconsistent from fresh from the freshmen throughout the year. But guess what? That's what freshmen do. And now they are a year more experienced. And look, no one's had the greatest fall for Duke, 48 and 38 overall in singles. Now they are 23 and 9 in doubles. And I think this Duke program is a program that prides itself in its double success. But as we look at the singles, Jay, why I'm not concerned about the fall results at all is that the new additions they bring in, like with all due respect, I love fall college tennis, really love the All-American, really love the fall Nats. To graduate students at Duke, the fall is less significant than perhaps it is to younger players at other programs. And you look at players like Cam Mora, who had a good fall, by the way, Mora going 7-6 uh, overall, but making it to and having good results at some of the big events. Obviously, you bring in a Brianna Schwetz, who we throw out the last two years of Ivy League tennis, but we know what she was capable of back in 2020. You bring in a Brisgalova as well. Katie Codd, the freshman who had some really nice pro results over the summer. 
Talk to me about the pieces this team added, Jay, and who you're most encouraged about. Well, I think you you mentioned all four of those new additions there. They bring in the trio of grad transfers, right? Cam Mora from UNC, who comes in with one year of eligibility, and then Schwetz and Bryce Golova uh, from the Ivy League, both coming in with actually two years of eligibility. You know, uh, Cam Mora, right? She's been a top five player in the country. She played number one for UNC last year. She's a five-time All-American and NCAA semifinalist. The accolades are extremely long for her. Uh, and she had a solid fall, like you said, and it was pretty much in line with the sort of results. So the 500 mark you saw when she plays against kind of like the elite competition within college, or she comes in ranked, you know, number six, and she ends the season fall season ranked around 28. So I think we saw what you would expect for, for Cam Mora. Much more of the question mark is on Brianna Schwetz and Yulia Brezgalova, who are coming from the Ivy League. Both had their career highs in 2019. Brezgalova at Penn was the Ivy League Player of the Year in 2019, reaches the top 10 of the ITA rankings in 2020. And then you have Brianna Schwetz, uh, who reaches the top 20 of the ITA rankings in that same year was playing number one for Princeton. But look, the Ivy League shut down for 2020 and 2021. So they were both kind of getting their sea legs a little bit back underneath them this past season, probably weren't as elite as they had been in that 2019 or 2020 season. And that's the big question mark, right? These are players who, you know, are both enrolled at, you know, Duke's MBA program, like we saw with Bar Botzer, probably not, you know, interested in playing a ton of fall matches, um, but they did play sparingly. So those are going to be the X factors for them. I think Cam Mora is much more of a known commodity. We've seen her playing these past two years, uh, but the question mark for me is on the grad transfers from the amazing the thing is if they have five players who have all played credibly at the number one singles position, five of them who have all, if you play Beck at one, if you play Drummy at one, if you play Mora at one, if you play Briscolova at one, it's been a little bit long. You know, the Schwetz trial and error period, I suppose, isn't quite, or the, the resume isn't quite as padded as those first four names. But even then, you look for Brianna Schwetz, who in 2019 2020 went 16 and three in the fall, reached number 17 in the Oracle rankings. It's not as though her resume lacks. Um, she, those, those are five credible number one singles players, to your point. And I think what makes this lineup so dangerous, especially come the spring, is you can employ my favorite system, the platoon system, and you can keep the load pretty light on everyone if you want to rotate things around. You can work a system based on, well, you're playing well, so you're going to play a little bit higher, and you know you need to build your confidence. So maybe we're going to play you a little bit lower in the lineup right now, and it's just the lineup flexibility the Blue Devils have at the top positions. And again, all of these teams are going to have this moving forward. But I do wonder, you know, again, I want the Schwetz conversation in a second. You mentioned Brizgalova. She was 23 and 7 last season, 14 and 4 in dual matches. Like, it's funny that that was a down year by her standards. It was still a very good year. And I think she's played only five matches, at least singles wise, in the fall thus far. But yeah, like, I guess it comes down to what I like. I, I could see this team peaking later in the season. You're right. Like that's that's the thing for this team. Will they be 
as I don't want to say as hungry because that's the not the right word, but will things be more paced because it is an older group? I, I guess that's the question I pose to you. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of stealing uh, some of my thunder later on <laughs> in this pod around like how I think this season will pan out for them. But look, I, I think that's that's right. I was looking, you know, Georgia Drummy had an underwhelming fall. I went back and I was like, I, I had the sense she had this underwhelming fall last season. And she did. She was like four and four last season. Did that stop any of the momentum coming out in the spring? Not at all. Right. So that's where you look at these fall results and you know, whether it's Bryce Golova or Schwartz or Drummy, it's hard to put too much stock in them. Maybe a more concerning, right? Because now when we're talking about, hey, Schwartz and Bryce Golova were top 20 in the country in 2020, well, that's coming up on three years ago, right? And so there's been a lot of time baked in between. But yeah, I mean, look, if Bryce Golova finds her immediate form just from this past few months, then, you know, it's going to be um, it's going to be a tough t- team to beat given all those options they have. Yeah, I also think, and again, this is where we can meld in and sort of look at the lineup big picture. Not only do they have those five stalwarts who, again, have all played big matches and significant events. I suppose Bryce Golova a little bit less so, but given her individual success, she has been exposed to the highest levels of college tennis. Even if you know Penn wasn't playing, maybe in the biggest stages all of the time. Yeah. Um, the thing is, and we mentioned this earlier, and I don't want to sell these players short, I know they didn't have the greatest falls. You look for Ellie Coleman, 5-3 and three in singles. Emma Jackson, 6-5 and five in singles. Baronkova, 3-3 three and three in singles. Katie Codd, 6-8. and eight. But you don't feel terrible about playing any of those options, 4 through 6 singles throughout the year. And you can sort of pace the 5 elder statesman, dare I say, and say like, all right, we only really need three of you. We're going to travel with four of you, but let's do a platoon system. All of you get a weekend off throughout the course of this dual match season. So we're going to make sure the graduate students are happy. Sorry, younger players, you're going to have more of a burden. But isn't that what you want? Like playing COD in the all due respect, like as you look at their schedule next year, you know, it's going to be Cod playing the Louisville or Clemson, Georgia Tech weekend, maybe, or, you know, Baronkova, you don't have to come to Syracuse and Boston College. You can sit that one out. And, uh, you know, maybe you use all the big guns when you go to Wake Forest, NC State, like that week's the tough one. Maybe you want a little revenge when the Florida schools come to town. Um, but I feel like they do have that depth as well with the young pieces, right? If Coleman, Jackson, Cod are four, five, six, you're feeling pretty good. Yeah, I mean, they have nine players on this roster, right? Yeah. All who will contribute this season. Even if Baronkova doesn't play one match in singles, she has played at number one doubles for the last two years. Yeah. Right. So she will factor into this lineup very significantly. So that's not a question, right? The question is in just what order do they play them? Right. And they will play. But yeah, this team of almost all the teams probably has the strongest like eight. It's it's up there right now. They only play six deep and you don't you don't need an eight player necessarily, but they definitely have the options to take those weekends off, rotate in and out, et cetera. I will filibuster for you if you don't have the top 10 power six, uh, sorry, top six UTR team lineups pulled up. Shout out. Sorry. Oh, abolish the filibuster. Team. We don't even need to do it. I have it up. Um, power six for. Wait, can Duke. I guess? Can I guess where they rank? I'm, okay. I don't have it up, I promise. I'm going to guess with the depth they have. Now, there are some other teams that will have higher end talent, but I'm, I feel like they're at six. 
Like they feel like a sixth in that sort of rank because of how deep they are. They're eleventh. Really? Yeah. Wow. And I think a lot of that comes down to like the the top of the roster, right? Sure. They don't have any players above eleven. You know, Chloe Beck is number one at ten point nine three, Drummy at ten point nine one, Mora ten point six, and then it kind of drops off down. That to is like an undersell. That is an undersell of this roster, and that's because Brizgalova's played five matches, and some of the right the match counts pretty low. What's Katie Cod on the team's lineup? Is she one of the higher UTRs? She's second to last. Really? Yeah, I think that was a little bit different as she end, ended her junior career. I think these the she's had a tough fall, and I think some of those losses has impacted her UTR. Interesting. Well, when we look at the team's strength, I think we've been pretty clear, right? It's the depth. It's the fact that there's a lot of lineup flexibility. I like the doubles options too. And again, looking at the stats for this team in the fall, 23 and 9 now. Beck and Morrow were the big winners, 13 and 3. They had a lot of success, but Barankova, who you mentioned, couple years of number one doubles under her belt she went four and one with ellie coleman she went one and one in the match she played with brisgalova but cotton schvetz three and two overall jackson and schvetz five and three i feel like there are just a lot of pieces to play everywhere you know we haven't even seen drummy really work her way into the doubles lineup yet and you know the lefty will be in it yeah and if anything i think we're underselling like Mm -hmm. chloe beck and georgia drummy at that one two spot right they were excellent last season i mean chloe beck is now you know ranked what number three in the ita rankings after the fall that she had she was 10 and three she had a very strong fall um so you know they have options everywhere doubles will continue to be strong um it'll be curious though if they do have some absences throughout, like how many reps do certain players get in doubles? How do you kind of like acclimate newer players to the system? Didn't seem like it took Cam Moore long to acclimate with Chloe Beck. Uh, but when you look at Schwetz and Bryce Golova, maybe it's just the experience, right, of playing so many uh, doubles matches that they'll be able to um, transition right in. You're not allowed to call anything but NC State doubles the system. They've patented it. You know, Simon has made sure to file with the right authority. So their doubles philosophies, principles, dare I say, but there's only one system. No, you're absolutely right. That said, I love all the pieces. Like, absolutely love what they're going to put together. And I'm really glad you said that, Jay. Sometimes, I, you know, we, we sort of gloss over things. You look for Kelly Chen uh, – excuse me, Kelly Chen. You look for Chloe Beck in her career – she has been – is she the most underappreciated excellent star of this past like four or five-year era? Because when you look at the resume Chloe Beck has piled up, she's a multiple – you know, an All-American obviously in singles last season, an academic All-American as well. She overall in her record – and I think that – I'm going to go off of what I have in front of me. 49-8. and eight in her career in dual matches, 24 and two in her career in ACC play, 84 and 24 overall in singles. Again, it's not Mount Rushmore, but it's really good for a really long time. Yeah. It reminds me of Adam Walton of Tennessee. Very she's good like call. the Adam Walton of Tennessee where you're just. God, Jay, that's so good. Bravo, bravo. Thank you. Um, but, you but, know, just sorry, finish the point. Can you explain that to the listeners just because they just so they don't get it? Yeah. Someone who is just incredibly, you know, week in, week out, day in, day out, incredibly consistent, uh, going to put wins on the board for their team. And someone who also, you know, 
gets better every year, right? I have no question. I mean, she's now number three in the country, right? She comes in as a freshman. She was playing number three singles. She's now kind of their um, incumbent number one, if you will. Same thing with Adam Walton. He had five years at Tennessee. You saw him move up the lineup. And by the end of his fifth year there, he was making the NCAA semifinals, ranked in the top three in the country. So someone who doesn't have the, you know, when you think, the best player in college tennis. This person probably doesn't come to mind, but is probably one of, you know, the biggest MVPs for their respective team. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned it earlier as well, how good Georgia Drummy was to start the season. You look at the early results, right? It was win over uh, CMRs, a win over Freeman, a win over Corley, a win over Adams. You know, she was cruising to start the year. And at a time when after losing that, match to Oklahoma. How good was this Duke team? It was, well, let us show you uh, how good we're going to be. And then down the home stretch at that number two spot, going undefeated. Like they went undefeated in a top two position and they bring them both back here this year. Now, even if that slips to, I don't know, 22 and three, you feel really good about that spot. You also do kind of feel low-hanging fruit-wise at that number one spot last season, 15 and 10 overall. Even if they slip three matches at the number two spot, we're really geeking out here with the math. But folks, it's preseason podcast. This is what we're giving to you. Let's just look at the scenarios. Sometimes you can't quantify it. We are ultimately looking for four points. They may go 22 and three at 2J, but I could also see them going 20 and 5 at 1 or, tw- or 19 and 6, right? Like this team, you feel really good about the top two, even if it's Mora working her way in as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it'll be Beck. Uh, I think she has like earned that, uh, earned that status towards the end of last year. And this fall shows me nothing else. I mean, she got wins over Sarah Hamner of South Carolina, a teammate, Emma Jackson, Abby Rincelli of NC State. You know, she's looking like she can be the part. And if she has a 70% win percentage there at the top or anything higher, that's, that's what she'll need. She'll, you know, the, the, this Duke Duke team will get the wins elsewhere. Um, So don't need to rely on a a sure point at number one. Yeah, absolutely. And then again, low hanging fruit wise, 12 and 11 at three last year, whether it's drummy, Brisgalova, Schvetz, whoever it is, you feel like that's going to get better. That could be their best spot this year. Yeah. Right. Because whoever plays three, some combination of Beck, Drummy, Mora, even if it's just those three. If one of those three is playing uh, three. three, you're talking about UNC's number one from last year and a person who was undefeated at number two yeah. moving down to three. So, like, number three should be a, a, a lock. That's a lock. No, I my favorite segments we do is midway through the season when we do the MVP and the ideal lineup conversation. We'll do that again this year. That's it's. I'm so happy to have Team Tennis to be able to do those things, and college provides us that avenue. Drummy and like I'm pretty sure Beck was one or two on our list when we did that MVP, Jay, at, at yeah, some point last year. She was up year. there, absolutely. Yeah, and you could argue the Duke three – is one of the early candidates for most valuable positions in college tennis. Absolutely. And then again, 17 and 5, difficult but replicable at that number 4 spot. 15 and 9 at 5, 16 and 9 at 6. You feel like they could stay par for the course there that year uh this year maybe even exceed that number. The ultimate low-hanging fruit though is doubles. Like ultimately they go 47 and 26, which sounds good on surface level. 
But they went 23 and 3 at the number 3 spot, 11 and 15 at 1, 13 and 8 at 2. Now they found one of those a lot of the times and they had a little cushion at number 3. You feel like with the depth they have, they could have that same cushion and then 1 and 2 there's only room to improve. Yeah, I guess the only you know the only concern is that that number 3 team is gone. Right, that they've been broken up now with Billiken leaving. So they'll need to find three new teams. It seems like they have found at least one with Mora and Beck having some good success. And that leaves a lot of talented players left uh, to fill in those remaining four slots. Absolutely. And so I guess then when you look at this roster, any weaknesses? What do you see? Look, or concerns, it, I should say. Yeah. I mean, look, I have a working theory and I'm working on it here. But <laughs> good. I think the the efficacy and the value of graduate transfers is going to start to decrease. I think in 2021, when you had a fifth year come back, they were robbed of their senior season. Now, look, I mean, these players are able to take advantage of these situations and get graduate degrees from high level programs. I think it's a little bit of a different situation. So I get cons- I I need to see it uh, when it comes to Bryce Golova, Schwetz, I add Mora. You know how serious are we taking this? Uh, I think that that's a question. Fuck me. And uh, the reason I say that, Jay, and don't worry, I'm going to give myself credit here. That's such a good theory, and this is why I'm so happy we have you on the show now so frequently because that's an excellent point, and it's non-quantifiable, but you're absolutely correct. And look, the contrast to that theory would be that Barbotzer's rise in level at the number six position at the NCAA tournament is what ultimately allowed UVA to push over that final threshold and really gave them that depth one through six. And yeah, there were a lot of other confounding variables, shout out, as well, um, perhaps contributing to that. But you're right, like during the season, if you are extraordinarily reliant on graduate transfers, will that in, will that harm your team's, you know, again, the mid-March stretch when you're on the road, back-to-back weekends, is that going to maybe you go 2-2 two and two or 3-1 and one instead of the 4-0 and oh you have when it's all freshmen through seniors still at the peaks of their interest in tennis? Not saying that these grad transfers, by the way, aren't because there are a lot of them who are continuing to play college tennis because they do want to pursue professional tennis careers. But I think that's absolutely a storyline to monitor. Are there a lot of them wanting to pursue professional careers? I I don't know. I think we saw a lot of that with like the Baylor pipeline in 2021. You know, I think there are a lot of players who want to get amazing advanced degrees as they should. So, so we will see. And I think it is, um, it is a large task for any coach, any staff to integrate uh, fifth year transfers into a team it's a challenge. I think we saw this with Pepperdine last season, uh, bringing in grad transfers at, at the fifth year. We'll see that again with Pepperdine. Look, there are a lot of examples where it's remains to be seen how effective it can be done. And again, it, the, the, the theory of the case kind of shot out with the Baylor men in 2021. And you had the UNC women coming back. 
I don't know. We didn't really see that in 2022. I think the bar example is totally different. You took who was someone who was playing number one for their team. You move them all the way down to six. And does he show up at that point in time? Yes. What if someone is a former number one? You need them to play one. I don't know. So it's obviously player dependent. It's obviously not going to be a blanket statement, but that is where the questions arise. I don't think it's directly comparable, though, because there are also players who transferred after their sophomore or junior year who will still be using a fifth year elsewhere, right? And they might not be grad transfers, but they're still COVID transfers. And that's where things get a little bit sticky, right? Like, you know, Nell Miller's fifth year, if she opts to use it, and I think she does have pro aspirations, will be at NC State. Now, does she count as a grad transfer? Probably not. But I feel like there are a lot. It's just the categorization gets tricky for me is why I would speak in defense of it. I would also say that the the Baylor transfer is probably the best comparison for what this Duke team received. And I do think it's worth saying that because in Nick Stokowiak and Spencer Furman, you were getting two proven commodities, two players who played top of the lineup, ACC tennis, doubles pairing, top five in the country. They were that good. And you knew you were going to get to play them lower in the lineup. You were getting a guy in Charlie Broom who, yes, was at the Ivy Leagues, but was playing the highest level, number one singles Ivy League tennis, was a top 60 player at his school. That's exactly what you're getting in Barankova, in Schwetz, in whomever the third, Brisgolova. And so— Mora, Brisgolova. Oh, Mora, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And so when I look at this team— like that's the thing is it your your theory is very interesting and yet it could also not apply to this team. Totally. It, it uh, in the best case scenario this looks like the Baylor 2021 team, yes. right? Of those three transfers almost I mean almost school for school are basically yeah. a replica there is a, of what we're getting. There's a beautiful gift from the tennis gods that we go Duke to Baylor and now it goes back to Duke women's tennis. That is a gift. Yeah. And look, that could very well happen. Arguably, one might think it it will when we get to predictions time, but that's just one of the open questions for this team. I mean, this is a team we're now with four new players uh, that they need to integrate. There's a different vibe when you're an undergrad versus grad school. Look, there are just more factors that one needs to deal with when you have a significant portion of grad transfers. Yeah. The thing is, the grad transfers and the older players outnumber the younger players. Like, it's a group of five, right? And you do feel like, again, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating balance. It's, I'm, I look forward to asking Coach Ashworth, is it like coaching two different teams where you've got, uh, here's how I manage this group, here's how I manage that group. I mean, certainly we've alluded to it, but let's just get into it. Projected lineup. As you look at this roster, we've talked through all the pieces, Jay. Who goes where? I'd be surprised to see anything other than Beck, Drummy, Mora at one, two, three. I agree with Beck. She's earned the right to be there. She's had the best fall. She was that good throughout the course of last season. And just go listen to Coach Ashworth rave about her as well in that pre-NCAA interview I mean, Dromi was undefeated at two. I don't know how you put her any lower. I still think it's going to be a platoon system. Like, I wouldn't lock in. They're all going to play in those spots in every match this year. But at the kickoff weekend at the National Indoors, I would agree with you with those three. Where do you go from there? So, I mean, a player we haven't talked much about is Emma Jackson, right? Emma Jackson, who moved kind of up to the you know three position there. I would say right now, if I had to slot them in, I would have Jackson at four, Bryce Golova at five, and Schwetz at six. 
Interesting. Why Jackson so high? Well, I think she she was at three, right? And she performed okay there. If you move her down to four, right, and you get Bryce Golova and Schwartz at five and six, you feel really good about those two positions there. I'm looking for uh, Jackson. She got a win over Arena Contos in the fall. Tough losses to Tangillic, Contos, and Fliegner, but none of those are bad losses. The win over Ackley is very impressive. Yeah. Damn, she goes 5-5 five and five this fall. She's 22 in the ITA rankings. Yeah, that's really impressive. And then again, let's not forget Katie Cobb. Uh, Katie Cod was one of the top recruits in her class. And, you know, you look for Cod, who does come in with some WTA points. She was, yeah, blue chip, number 12 in her class to end things. She has some weapons. She can absolutely slug the ball. And I'm going to be fascinated to see where she fits in in doubles as well. <sighs> Man. The thing is, here's the question. What's the better version of this lineup? If the grad transfers are playing their best and they dominate the four and five spot, or is it if the young players take that sophomore surge and now they surpass the grad transfers and it's like, hey, like it's great to have you, but you know we didn't actually end up needing you because all these young players we brought back took another step forward as well. These are the choices they have. I think the best version of the team actually sees the younger players playing at NCAAs because that means they have made the leap. But I agree with you. I think early in the season, I would go Brisgolova 4, Schwetz 5, Jackson 6. But I don't feel great about it, Jay. I don't feel great about it. Yeah, that's fair. I think I think it's not a good situation for this team if Brisgolova and Schwetz are not playing. Wait, no, but I'm saying it is because I think they're going to be very good and yeah. the young players being better than them means like, whoa. But you, what young player is better than them in your Jackson lineup? or like if Jackson or Cod really clicks this year, it's like, you know what? Katie Cod's been on campus. The fitness is now exactly where it needs to be. We have her confident with her weapons. We know what the playbook's going to be. She knows how to handle the no ad points. We need her weapons at five. Jackson just, you know, that win over Kanto she got early in the season, that's her highest level. And she is locked in on the four spot. And like, with all due respect to Brisgolo, but like, we just have these two, like that's, I'm saying the highest case scenario version. Interesting. I think the highest case scenario version of them is you get a 2019, 2020 version of Brisgolova and Schwartz. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, if they get all of those things, this seems probably winning a national championship. Um, but that's what makes this group so fascinating. And obviously it's too hard to predict the doubles lineup until we know who's playing with whom and where, but you look at the schedule for this team, certainly the kickoff weekend, they will be heavy favorites to get to the national indoors this year as they host SMU, the always frisky Wisconsin Badgers. Um, and by the way, SMU pretty solid as well. And VCU going to be their opening match. You look at what the non-conference schedule looks like for this team. They're going to go face their former assistant as they're going to take on, or excuse me, they're going to face uh, Coach Ashworth's former assistant, Michelle Dasso, over at Furman. Over and to Kelly Sydney. Chen, as you brought up. Yes, to start the season, Charleston South, Charlotte, a little Sunday doubleheader. Now, they've got Harvard coming to town. Uh, you know, again, that's an interesting match, I suppose. And North Carolina Central, Georgetown. But after that, it's pretty ACC heavy. And look, when oh, they do sneak in a Northwestern coming yeah. to town, I should say, on March 22nd. But look, when you've got at North Carolina on your schedule already, when you've got, you know, uh, at or Virginia 
early on in February as well. Miami's coming to town. NC State's coming to town. Certainly, uh, one, you imagine where there's going to be an ACC team we're not thinking about right now who's going to end up a little bit better than we thought. What do you think about this schedule, Jay? Is it going to give them enough shots? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Oh, yeah, definitely, right? I mean, all those ACC schools plus the ACC tournament. Plus, they're going to make indoors this year. Yeah, I mean, they'll be more battle-tested this year than they were last year. Um, but it'd be great for if one of these ACC teams just wanted to throw in a little sweep through the SEC. You know, brought like last year, I think it was NC State and Duke who brought in Ohio State and one other team. Maybe okay. Princeton. It was Ohio State and Princeton. And oh, those to start were, the season. And those to start yeah. the season. And those were juicy ones. I'm not seeing any of that this year, which is disappointing. Again, the Brett Macy standard for what a schedule should look like is now what I say is the gold standard. I mean, again, Furman yeah. and Charlotte are frisky. Not exceptional, but always frisky programs. Yeah, there's definitely meat on the bone. At the same time, their first conference weekend features at Virginia, who, by the way, is number nine in our preseason top ten. And, you know, they do have – I'm looking for – you know, I always like to look in the schedule early. What's the toughest week? I think this is the toughest eight-day stretch they have on their uh, calendar. It goes Miami March 31st, Florida State April 1st. All these matches are at home. Wake Forest that Thursday. So, you know, five days later, then they have NC State at home that Saturday. That's a lot. You know, four matches in eight days is a lot of tennis on the body. They then have a five-day rest before they had to Chapel Hill to end the season. And circle that match right now. Um, that's going to be a fun one, certainly, as North Carolina maybe has some revenge on the mind. That said, they avoid the at Florida trip. Always a blessing in any calendar, right? Like, in this Duke team has an indoor facility. They have an outdoor facility. There's a world where they have two losses, maybe, going into the NCAA tournament, right? If things really click and they can, you know, because they do get NC State at home. And for what it's worth, early in the season with some of the younger pieces at Virginia, maybe the veterans of this Duke team power them through that at Virginia opening conference match. I think this team is well positioned to maybe swoop a top eight CJ. And obviously that's why we have them number eight. Well, yeah, if they have two losses, they're probably like the number one team in the country, right? <laughs> because that would assume that they, no, the two losses are both to Carolina at the indoors and, uh, and during the regular season. Okay. So then this team wins the championship, the tournament. No, 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 uh, no, no. Oh yeah. I guess the three, losses, like they, a lot of, okay. Three losses. Yeah. No, I mean, right. that's been kind of the norm, right? Three to five yeah. losses. Uh, in, in a typical Duke season here. You're actually so right, by the way. If it's two losses, they're number one in the country. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> a good great call season. by you. Yeah. yeah, good call by you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, are we doing predictions? Well, let's get to this because okay. this has been a very glass half full podcast. And let's be clear. 
you know, I try not to expose who has people ranked to. I, I had Duke higher than eight in my preseason rankings, and we'll get into why we're so encouraged about the seven teams we have in front of them as we get to our next seven podcasts. But the question I ask you, Jay, is why isn't this team higher? Is it just simple as you like the upside of other teams more? You mentioned those UTRs. They are 11th, so maybe you're banking on a lot of players returning to form. What's the concern? Well, I don't think they have an elite number one, right? I don't know. I mean, they're not going to probably not favor to win at number one against a lot of those matches you just talked about, even in the ACC. Um, so one will drop some matches. Uh, doubles, as we talked about, they have to replace all all the pairs. Mm-hmm. It, this team <laughs> has a lot. Pairs. Replace all the pairs. All the pairs, all three <laughs> yeah. of them. I mean, this team has all the pieces, we just haven't seen like the puzzle put together, right? I mean, this is a lot of new faces, right? And again, there's question marks on Cam Mora, Bryce Golova, Schwetz. Bryce Golova and Schwetz had bad falls, and they are not playing at the level that they have played in the past. Bryce Golova wasn't even playing at the level she played six months ago. That's super concerning. Now, does that just turn around in the spring and she starts taking tennis a little bit more seriously, wanting to get acclimated to NBA life? That is totally possible and probably likely. But on paper, when you look at the results over the fall, that's what's concerning. I would add in Coleman and Cod both really struggled. So I don't know. I feel like Duke kind of sandbags a little bit with these fall results. I mean, Georgia Drummy like always has a bad fall. So you're always in this limbo period with them of like, well, how good can they be? But, you know, that is the the glass, uh, you know, half empty um, view of this. Fair. Uh, so with all of that in mind, then let's get into the predictions. And I am fascinated to ask Coach Ashworth, what did he think of the fall? How does he plan to pace things? We'll have him on the show. But as we look at the predictions, again, I try to make them a little bit team specific here for all the Duke fans. I have one more glass half empty. Oh, please. <laughs> that we probably didn't spend as much time on. One, they lost Kelly Chen. Yeah. And Kelly Chen, fifth year senior last year, you know, truly from an outsider's perspective, felt like the beating heart of this team, right? And you look at so many of their vintage moments over the past few years, they have been Kelly Chen in the biggest moments for that team, whether it was cramping and going to the hospital to clinch their place in the NCAA quarterfinals in 2019, the, the late night matches, you know, her victory UCF, over Nell Miller, yeah. exactly the UCF matches. So, you know, that Baylor. Wow. You're right. Like they're all racking like, together. It's now. all come down to Kelly Chen in those big yeah. moments and, and she's gone. And so, you know, a team has to kind of, someone else has to step up, right? There has to be a new, you know, beating heart of the team. And that from an outsider's perspective, and you look at this and you go, well, I don't know where that is. And is that harder to do when you have what appears to be sort of like a split team, right? And you have these new grad transfers coming in. So that's one other, you know, half, uh, half empty view of this is just a intangible. Uh, fair, completely fair. I'll say this, why I'm so high on this team is I think Chloe Beck is ready to fill that role this year. And I think she will be an elite number one singles. And with that in mind, let's get into the predictions as we look at Duke here in 2023. Start with the specific one. Do they beat Carolina? No. No wins over Carolina this season. <sighs> I tend to agree with you just because, obviously, 
I think Carolina is that good. Where do they finish in the ACC? Second. Because of the NC State match at home? No, because NC State drops a weird one without you know players in the lineup. Interesting. They will and, either I mean, make they could, no, that's a very good call. They're either gonna finish the regular season second or they're gonna make the final of the conference tournament. They're gonna come in second in something. I'm not sure which one yet. I think the conference tournament would be where I lean. I think they're gonna finish second. I think they finish th- third in the regular season. And I think they lose to NC State at home in that late season match, but then they beat NC State in the conference tournament, and they're the hot team we're talking about after they lose a really tight 4-3 match to Carolina in the ACC conference tournament. Where do you see this team going at the national indoors? Ooh. Well, I think they're just thankful they have a a straightforward (laughs) kickoff weekend. I mean, talk about – I mean, two NCAA semifinalist team at that kickoff weekend last year. That's probably a first. Probably a first. Um, I have no. I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> um, you know, I'll say. You know, they they win their first round and and drop their second. Yeah, I yeah. think. I think they go two and one. I'm not sure where the one's going to come. Um, all right. One yeah. other thing. The other reason I don't think they'll get a win over Carolina this year. I don't think Cam Moore is going to get a win in singles against Carolina. It's tough. That oh, is man. tough. And especially because it's on the road. Like, it'd be one thing if it was at home. On the road, we've played so many matches. It's a fascinating That's, subplot. Yeah. It's, it's one for us to watch. Um, all right. NCAA tournament. Are they a top eight seed? Yes. Do they reach the semifinal round? They do. Quarterfinal round. Sorry. Quarterfinal oh. round. They did. Uh, they reached the quarterfinals and the semifinals. So you have this as a semifinal team. I do. Did you read my notes? No, you don't share an outline with me. This is. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I just spent two minutes listing it for you in the intro, so you're prepared for what you're going to get. See, I was going to come on this show and say <laughs> I'm really high on this team, and I actually think they're going to make the semifinals. But I hate when we do this. I don't like the group thing. I agree, though. Like. On paper, yeah. here's what needs to happen. Of the three grad transfers, you really need – so here's the thing. We could just – let's divide it into parts. Okay. One of Beck and Drummy. If one of them retains their 2022 form, you feel great. You know, Mora, whoever – two out of the three of Mora, Schwetz, uh, and Brisgalova. You feel like if you can get two out of the three clicking or even one out of the three, you're feeling really good about that piece. And then of Jackson – Coleman, Cod, you feel like if you can get one of the three there, you've got that piece going as well. You just feel like there's a very clear scenario where this Duke team is going to be really freaking good at three or four things specifically come the NCAA tournament. And again, half this game is just math. Find me three points. Find me four points. You can find three points very easily with this Duke team in just about any scenario you want to paint. And why they're number eight is because, again, some of the teams above here, you're just like, how are you not the unequivocal NCAA championship favorite? <sighs> I think this Duke team makes the semifinals too, Jay. I'm just going to lock I can't. I was sold on doing that coming in. I don't know how I'm going to pivot and say quarterfinals. Like, yes, there are some other teams where I think the upside might even be higher because they have some really exciting parts. But 
yeah, like again, this team lost to Oklahoma twice and that and had a bad weekend in Florida. That was it last season, and they are demonstrably on paper better. So I think it's very easy to get excited about Duke. Final word goes to you. Yeah, well, and they also have performed extremely well at the NCAA tournament. They make the semis in 2018, the semis in 2019, quarters in 2021, and the semis in 2022. Like, they've made the semis three of the last four tournaments. It's hard to bet against that for a team that now knows how to get there. And I think to your point, they really only need one or two people to like click, right? That, you know, you need one of Bryce Golova and Schvetz to click. You need one of the, you know, freshmen or sophomores to click. Other than that, you feel pretty good. I would say the reason they're coming in at eight right now is because things could go wrong and we don't necessarily know what these players look like in that six. That was right? it, the, fall, the fall, right? For some of the graduates. It's just like, if you would have killed it in the fall, then there would be no questions, but because it's just like, we need to see the acclimation. Yeah. And it's tough to, it's tough to have a play multiple players on a downward trajectory. Yeah. And that's where we're at with Bryce Glova and Schvetz, right? You know, if Bryce Glova comes in and, is a top 25 player and winning these matches, then you're going, okay, wow, this is looking really good. And they're much higher in this ranking because you don't have those questions, yeah. right? But there are other teams above them in the rankings where you go one through six. I know you're six. I don't have any questions, yeah. but ultimately, look, I think this team could slip up early in the season, given some of the stuff that we've talked about, you know, come May, I think they're playing their best tennis. You mentioned it, semis, semis, quarter semis. And it's like, I, we were both. Oh, you were at the Duke UNC match in the quarters, right? I was recording a pod during it, uh, and then I, that you know, Duke, uh, Duke uh, quarters in the quarters of 2021. NC State. Oh, no, 2021. Duke, yeah, oh. Duke UNC. Yeah. In the NC that State. Was- yeah, sorry to go back the year. Yeah. UNC wins the doubles, so I was like, you know what? I have time to go record a podcast. And then Barankova wins the first set over Tran. Chi uh, wins a six love first set over Jones. Drummy over Graham. Chen and Davitella are battling and yep. back first set over Mora as well. Duke had that North Carolina team on the ropes in yep. 2021. And that's another reason. I, historically, guess what? Duke's earned that benefit of the doubt. They have peaked. And yes, they've lost Chen, but all of these players, Chen, Drummy, both played in that 2021 match against North Carolina. So did Barankova, as I alluded to, by the way, at the sixth spot. So, yes, they have new pieces. But you know who else played in that Duke-UNC match? Cam freaking Mora, who's going to be on the Duke roster now there. And it's just like this team is battle-tested. You're right. We're not sure who's going to fit yet, yet where, but there's a reason we are both very high on their upside. Number eight in our preseason rankings, but both Jay and I see Duke reaching the NCAA semifinals. With that said, for what it's worth to go full circle, I feel like my brain was in much better order in this podcast today, Jay. That was the <laughs> performance I was hoping for. I mean, I'm amped because, again, I feel like from here you can tell the tone is all of these teams have NCAA championship upside. I guess that's where we'll end things. Final word here. If Duke wins the NCAA title, it will be surprising, but I don't think I'll be shocked. Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked, yeah. you know, like and that's the thing. I feel like all eight teams here on out yeah. are semi-final teams, right? This is the inner circle. This is where it's like, I think, because if Virginia won the national title, I would be shocked. If USC won the national title, I would be shocked. 
Yeah. I really like this. This would be surprised, but you're in the circle. Yeah. And, and at that point, if you see a team going to the semifinals, yeah. look, I mean, you got a these shot. Teams, yeah, you got a shot. Exactly. So, and this team was, the match wasn't that close. It was a 4 3 match against Oklahoma when they played them again in the NCAA semifinals. The doubles point came down to a 7-5 at, I think, number two. Mm-hmm. And yet, and all the singles matches were in straight sets with the exception of Emma Staker for Oklahoma. It was 6-0 in the third, so it wasn't really that close. But but look, we was, were both there for the end of the second set. That was, and how many deuce points were there in that third set, especially early on? Yeah. So, I mean, this team was very close to making the NCAA final last year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, here on out, I mean, we're gonna have to switch roles on the glass half empty, glass half full because <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not carrying that role for the next uh, few weeks. I'll tell you what, by throwing them into the semifinals, it's actually hilarious in my head because I immediately thought, okay, who am I cutting out of my semifinal conversation? And I know who it is, and I'm already bracing for that podcast. But let yourself know that, or let yourself know. I hope you know that I actually I literally today as I came up with my Duke semifinal take, I go, oh, you know, after this, I'm probably going to have to go glass half empty. And so from here, I will accept that role uh, from you, my friend. But with that in mind, obviously, again, number eight, Duke, one of the teams in the conversation for the national championship. With that said, Jay and I will be back on Thursday, breaking down our number seven preseason team, Chris Halioris and I, for all of you listeners, breaking down our men's top 10 on Wednesdays and Fridays. All that content possible because of the of editing job our super producer, Daniel Westoff, does day in, day out. Shout out to him with that in mind, Jay. Any final thoughts before we wrap today's show? No, if you're interested in some uh, transfer stats, I posted those over on the No Ad No Problem blog uh, on Instagram. Find me at jtweetstennis on Twitter, and I'll see you uh, in a few days. I love it. Well, with all of that said, for the fantastic John J. Parsons, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at, I suppose, Tennis Point. I was snuck it in, leave it in. Why not? Free plug for you at Tennis Point. And from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Oreskin. Jay, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. And we will see you all on Thursday. Thank you as always, my friend. Thank you.